Do you have a favorite place? I mean, outside of the Lazy Boy that you're living in right now. Is there a place somewhere in the world that just thinking about gives you this little burst of happiness inside? I personally have two favorite places. Um, one of them is the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. And more specifically, the prehistoric sloth exhibit. Why, you might ask me? Well, I mean, look at this thing. It's a sloth the size of a T-Rex. One of its fingers is the size of my forearm. If Fred here doesn't count as one of God's finest creations, I don't know what does. Uh, my other favorite place is the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Uh, this wall is a part of a massive stone platform that was built by Herod the Great around the time of Jesus. Uh, above that platform once stood the Temple of Ancient Israel. If you visit the Western Wall today, you'll find people pushing written prayers into the cracks or murmuring their prayers out loud as they press their foreheads into the stone. I've visited there at 2 o'clock in the morning and still found the place packed with worshipers. The area just kind of hums with a spiritual energy that makes the hair stand up on your arms. Have you ever been someplace where the air feels thick or heavy somehow with the nearness of God? In ancient Hebrew, the word heavy and the word glory are the same word. When you leave the Western Wall, it's tradition to walk backward to avoid turning your back on God's presence. And to understand what this place means to ancient Judaism, you have to actually go back to the origin story of biblical Israel. The Israelites are just a ragtag band of slaves in Egypt when God appears to a man named Moses in a burning bush. God informs Moses that he is being sent to rescue the slaves, and that once they're free, Moses should bring them back to this same place to worship. The place where Moses and God are speaking is a mountain called Sinai. And the Israelites wouldn't have been surprised to receive instructions to meet God at a mountain. Sacred mountains were the place that ancient people expected gods to live. All majestic and inaccessible and all of that. And Moses does indeed lead the people back here to Sinai to introduce them to the God who saved them. But to everyone's amazement, God then gives Moses detailed construction plans for a special tent. And God announces that God is going to leave this mountain and from now on, travel with them. Exodus 40 tells the story of the day that God moves into this tent that's often called the tabernacle. Listen to Exodus' account. When Moses had finished all the work, the cloud covered the meeting tent, and the Lord's glorious presence filled the dwelling. Moses couldn't enter the meeting tent because the cloud had settled on it, and the Lord's presence filled the dwelling. Whenever the cloud rose from the dwelling, the Israelites would set out on their journeys. But if the cloud didn't rise, they didn't set out until the day it rose. The Lord's cloud stayed over the dwelling during the day, with lightning in it at night, 
clearly visible to the whole household of Israel at every stage of their journey. Well, this move from God was unprecedented. It was amazing and terrifying at the same time. Camping next to God is a bit like traveling with a mobile nuclear power plant. The plant, or in this case the tent, contains unimaginable power for good. But power and danger are always bound up together. When a cloud filled with lightning indicated that God was in residence in the tent, even Moses didn't dare to get too close. One of my favorite Old Testament stories is what happens on the day the priests are dedicated to serve in this tent. This short little story is told by Leviticus 9. Moses and Aaron entered the meeting tent. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the Lord's glorious presence appeared to all the people. Fire flew out from before the Lord and devoured the entirely burned offering and the fat pieces on the altar. All the people saw it. They shouted for joy and they fell face down. I love that story. The people cry out in joy and they fall down in awe because the presence of God is so real and so near to them at that moment. For many years, God continues to dwell in this tent, guiding and judging and protecting and even performing miracles from it. But eventually a king named Solomon decides it's time to give God an upgrade. He builds God a massive house, the first temple of Israel. The day that this building is dedicated, we're told this from 1 Kings 8. When the priests left the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple, and the priests were unable to carry out their duties due to the cloud because the Lord's glory filled the Lord's temple. What this description meant is that God has officially moved in. From this moment on, the temple and its city, Jerusalem, become the center of Israel's life, which sort of makes sense. I mean, after all, the temple is literally the place where heaven and earth meet. It's the one place where you can always go and be sure to find God there and listening. If you screw up and need forgiveness, you can find it at the temple. If you need guidance, you could go to the temple and ask. If you want something really badly, you can go to the temple and make your request. It's the holiest place on earth. That special place where the air is thick, supercharged with the very presence of God. The saddest moment in Israel's history comes many years later. God is present in the temple and speaking, but it turns out the people of Israel aren't that interested in listening. God tries for centuries to get their attention, but Eventually, God has had enough of being ignored. Now, one day, the prophet Ezekiel has this terrible vision where he sees the glory of God rise up out of the temple and depart. Through consistent disobedience, the people of Israel have forfeited the privilege of hosting God's presence on earth. 
the one thing that set them and their tiny nation apart from all the others. It's a devastating loss. And the building of the temple is destroyed by invaders, and eventually a second one is built. But it's widely acknowledged that things aren't the same. The presence of God has never returned, not in the same way. They don't live next to the power plant anymore. Oh, the building might look the same, but it's lost its living nuclear core. All that the people had to cling to are the words of Malachi, the prophet, one of the last people to speak to God before God goes deeply and conspicuously silent. And this is what Malachi says. Look, God says, I'm sending my messenger who will clear the path before me. Suddenly, the Lord whom you are seeking will come to his temple. So finally, we come to the book of Acts, chapter 2. At this point, it's been centuries since anyone has heard from God. But life goes on. And today happens to be Pentecost. And Jerusalem is busy because Pentecost is one of three holidays a year where Jews are required to come and pay their respects at the temple. And many pilgrims have packed into the city today. But one room in this city is rather different from the others. In this room is gathered about 120 followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Just a few weeks ago, Jesus was killed under the charge of threatening the temple. But many of this 120 had encountered him again after his death. And before he disappeared, one of the last things he'd said to them is that they should hang around Jerusalem until they received the gift that he would send. <laughs> they had no real idea what he meant, but they listen. So on the day of Pentecost, they're gathered together, presumably doing what they've been doing, waiting and praying. And then it happens, one moment to the next, just like Malachi promised. Suddenly, the Lord that they've been seeking just comes. When God's presence had entered that tent and later the temple of Israel in the Old Testament, remember what it looked like. It looked like a storm cloud settling. It looked like fire falling from heaven. On this day, on Pentecost, there's suddenly a sound around them like a fierce storm wind and tongues of fire descend. It's clear instantly that the moment they've been waiting for for centuries has come. The presence of God, the glory of God, has returned to Israel. Except there's been a twist. The second temple is still standing, less than a mile away. But God's presence doesn't come to the temple. Instead, it enters into the gathered bodies of 120 Jesus followers. To be clear, this is the same presence that filled the tabernacle with so much power and glory that even Moses didn't dare to set a toe inside. And that same presence has now filled Peter and Thaddeus and Mary and Salome. It fills them up so hot and fast and bright that they explode from the room onto the streets, radiating with it. When they pray, the ground shakes and shackles fall off prisoners. 
When they speak, they speak words straight from the heart of God that cuts straight to the heart of people. When they reach out and touch, broken people around them begin to experience real healing. When they suffer, their joy and their courage stuns their persecutors into silence. The Apostle Paul is the one who finally makes explicit what has become clear to everybody. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says this, Don't you all know that you are God's temple, and God's Spirit lives in you? What does this mean? Hear this clearly, friends. There is a place in this broken world where heaven and earth still meet, where the doorway to heaven actually stands open. There's a place where the presence of God can always be found. There's a place where even the worst sin can be erased completely. There's a place where the voice of God can be heard speaking directly and personally to people. There's a a place where chains can be broken and where impossible healing can happen. There is a place where the air is heavy with that very nearness of God. And that place is not the temple or what remains of its supporting wall. It also isn't any other building, not even one with a cross on the front. It isn't a mountain or a desert or a sacred spring, no matter how beautiful or awe-inspiring they are. There is one place on earth where God is present with all the power and the potency of Mount Sinai. And that place is the church. When we say church, let's be clear what we mean. We don't mean hundreds of people gathered on Sunday morning in a special building. Jesus actually explicitly defined for us what he means by the church. And he said, where two or three of gather in my name, I am there with them. I mean, let this sink in. Where two or three Jesus people gather in some living room in Peoria, that living room is the spiritual equivalent of the Jerusalem temple. It becomes filled with the very power and presence of the living God. It's not that we each get a little piece of the Spirit, so that when a few of us come together, we might be able to conjure up a few volts. As if if we added a few more people, we could get a little bit more Spirit juice. That's not what it is. The Spirit, God's presence on earth, is not a force that can be so divided. God's Spirit is a person. The only way the Spirit comes is as a whole package. You only get all of him or her. You aren't just living next to that power plant. You are that power plant. Do you hear this? I mean, where two or three of us are together, God's presence has moved into the neighborhood. All of God's presence. The temple has literally set down at 35th and Thunderbird. I'm convinced we haven't begun to imagine who we are or what would be possible for us if we would begin to grasp our identity and our calling to function as that temple, as the place where heaven and earth meet. Today is the first week of a new series on the Holy Spirit that we're calling Future People. And honestly, I cannot remember the last time I was this excited about anything. 
because I believe and I sense that God is on the move right now in the church in the midst of these strange times. And that God wants to act in ways that are going to blow our minds and completely change our understanding of our place in the world and what the Spirit can do through us. Do you know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit lives in you. Go this week in all of the power of God and act accordingly. Let's pray together. God, as usual, the news you bring is so much better than we've dared to imagine. We are the temple. We are the dwelling place of your spirit. Not just a small piece of it, not just a few bolts of it, but all of it. All of who you are is now present and alive among us. Lord, we confess that we, like the people of Israel, spend a lot of time looking for you, wondering where you are. We look to mountains or to churches or to big groups or just all different settings, like hoping that place, that place might provide us with the presence we're looking for. But all along, it's been here. Wherever some tiny pocket of the church is, wherever two or three of us gather in your name, you are there, your spirit is there. And all things that are possible for you become possible for us. Lord, we pray that you would throw our eyes wide open to this amazing reality. We pray that somehow your spirit would just be stirred up within us so that we begin to dream your dreams, to imagine and truly believe that things are possible we never would have imagined before because you are here because heaven is touching earth with us, because even our houses, even our ordinary houses and apartments can become and have become temples where you dwell in all your fullness. Lord, act in ways that surprise us, amaze us, and cause us to give so much glory and praise to you. We look for you this week in anticipation of all that you make possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.